Our uh, passage this morning, we continue in our study of Matthew, and we're finishing up chapter 8, and Daryl did a good job in last week in bringing us up to this point, describing Christ's early ministry busy every day, uh, from taking care of Peter's mother-in-law and, and then casting out demons and healing the sick and talking to people, potential disciples, and at the end of the day, he is exhausted Basically says, we need to get out of here for a while. Uh, being the, the son of God and being as powerful and as spiritual as he was, he was still human, and he was wore out. He just needed some downtime. And so that's what brings us to the latter part of chapter 8. Uh, but I've also included in parentheses, if you have your outlines with you, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through chapter 5, verse 20. And it's interesting, I want to dispel a myth. When I was in Bible college and seminary, they uh, showed us how that the people who don't really believe the supernatural element about the Bible, they want to explain everything away without God's divine intervention, said that Mark, uh, not really the Mark of the Scripture, but someone that they ultimately identified as Mark, wrote the first gospel, the Gospel of Mark, and then later on, Matthew and Luke used the Gospel of Mark as a basis for writing their Gospels. So they added to it, they emphasized it, explained it a little more. That's why Mark is short, relatively. It's got 15 real chapters and a little bit in chapter 16 that are also included in the Scripture, uh, where Luke has 24 chapters and Matthew has 28. And so you would expect uh, for the description of these events would be concise in Mark and then be much broader and explain and expounded upon more in Luke and in Matthew. But just the opposite is the fact. Uh, in our passage, uh, we're just going uh, from chapter 8, 23 through 34, that's 12 verses in the Gospel of Matthew. In Luke chapter 8, he covers the same series of events in 18 verses, and in Mark, supposed to be the concise one, the abbreviated one, uh, he has 27 verses, more than twice as many as we have in Matthew. So that's why we're going to be looking at Mark as well, because he adds uh, details and, and explanation that we don't have in Matthew, which indicates that God is the author ultimately of all the Scripture. And you can't figure it out, you can't pigeonhole it, you can't analyze it from a human perspective. God reveals what he wants to, to whom he wants to, through whom he wants to, according to his own glory. So, <clears throat> what we look at here, and when I first looked at that, I said, who designed this? Who cut these passages into uh, segments that we'd preach from? And then I realized it was I. <laughs> the elders asked me to do that last summer, and I didn't realize I'd be preaching this section because it has four different seemingly unrelated episodes in this one passage. But the more I studied it, I realized that, hey, these represent four different ways in which people respond to Jesus Christ. That's why I call it responses to the master. And a couple of them are really bad, and a couple of them are pretty good. One of them is real good. And so as we look at it, and as I go through this, I'd like for you to consider 
what is my response to the master? I've encountered him. He's had claims on my life. He's revealed things to me. How do I respond? So that's what we're going to look at, is these different responses to the master. The first one, and I encourage you to kind of follow along in an outline. It's in the bulletin. Uh, the tentative response of the rescued disciples. Uh, <coughs> as we uh, studied last week, it was at the end of the day that a whole bunch of people came to him. And that's when he was casting out demons and he was healing the sick and having amazing ministry. Uh, and now here it is at the end of the day. And uh, there are things that need to be done. So we look at these disciples beginning in verse 23 down through 27. Now, when he had got into the boat, he, they decided we need to get out of here. The master's wore out and he needs some rest. And he got in the boat, the disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was, was covered with the waves, and he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Their response was one of amazement. Uh, one of, actually, we'll see. Well, let's turn to Mark. Uh, if you can do this, uh, put a, a place mark in one place and in another so you can go back and forth because we're going to be looking at both passages because... <clears throat> Mark gives us details that Matthew does not. So we want to go over to Mark chapter 4 and begin in verse 35. And it says, On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. They were on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. This was a populated side. It had a big Roman city called Tiberias. It had Jewish settlements of Magdala, of Capernaum, of Bethsaida. And the Jews occupied that west side. On the east side, uh, that was kind of strange territory. A lot of pagans lived over there. A lot of backslidden Jews. A lot of Gentiles over there. But there he could escape the multitudes temporarily. There he could hopefully get some rest. And he could spend some time personally with the disciples that he had at that time. He hadn't yet put together the complete entourage of 12. He was in the process of adding disciples, but he had a bunch of them, Peter and James and John and Andrew and those were already with him. And it says that um, in the evening, he said, let us go to the other side. And now uh, when they had left the multitudes, they took him along in the boat as he was. It's like the disciples are helping him. Kind of like after I preached the last time. I came off of the platform and people came alongside, kind of helped me sit down and said, you're not looking so good. We need to check you out. So they're, they're taking him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. This was not a huge boat. This was a boat about from me to Ralph over there. Uh, it wasn't very wide, and the sides weren't very high, and the waves were spilling over, filling the, the boat already with water. And... But it says, he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. 
Can you imagine in that kind of circumstance where you had to be wet and cold and the boat is rocking to and fro and heaving about and you're asleep. What does that tell us about Jesus? That he was very human. That he took upon himself the frailties of humanity. He wasn't just God walking around in the form of a man. He was absolutely human. He got tired. He got hungry. He got weak. Uh, he suffered pain. He went through basically everything that we go through. And he was just absolutely wore out. Have you ever been that way where you could fall asleep on the top of a picket fence? You were so tired. I remember in the airport, uh, we were in Amsterdam, me and a fellow that was traveling with me to Africa to teach over there. And we had been going for days, and I taught all day long. We had meetings at night, and then we were flying from one airport to another. And we were waiting for our flight home, and I was sitting on a plastic bench, and it had no place to lie down or anything, just sitting upright, and went sound asleep. And our flight was called, and it didn't make any difference to me. I was gone. If my partner had woke me up and said, hey, we got to get on the plane, I might still be over there. I was just gone. I was so exhausted. And can you imagine Jesus rocking back and forth, the waves spilling over him? He's soaking wet, but he's sound asleep. It tells us that he was human and exhausted, but it also tells us that he had a divine awareness where that he could be at perfect peace in the midst of a terrible storm. And most of us couldn't do that. We'd be like the disciples, fearing for our lives. What's going to happen to us? And as we read on, and, uh, and he was in the stern on a pillow asleep. They woke him and said, Teacher, uh, do you not care that we are perishing here? And he arose, and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And it tells us what he said. It wasn't some long pronouncement. He didn't invoke the powers of eternity. He just said, Peace. Be still. And immediately, there was a great calm. The wind ceased, and there was a great... This had to be just astronomical. It had to be shocking. At one moment, the, the boat is pitching and wheeling, and the waves are way above the sides of the boat and spilling into the boats filling. And as hard as they rode it, as much as they bailed, they were going down. And then suddenly, whoosh, as calm as it could be, like a, the surface of a mirror, not a breath of wind. The waves disappear. And what is their response? It says, but he said to them, why are you so fearful? And it, it reads in another translation, why are you still so fearful? How is it that you still have no faith? And they, it says here, they feared exceedingly. They weren't just amazed. They were terrified to be in the presence of this person. Now, he was no stranger. They were already his disciples. They were following him, but they really didn't know who he was. And that's what they said. Who can this be? <laughs> this was Jesus for whom they had left their nets and their boats and their farms and whatever else they were doing and left their families and their homes and they were following him, but they didn't really know him. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
You know, I, I'm fearful that there are people who are indeed Christ followers in this building this morning that are kind of fit into that category. You're a follower of Christ, but you have no concept of who he really is and the power that he has available uh, in your life and the things that he can do in and through you if you'll but follow him and trust him. And like the Bible says, you're the, uh, you're the branches, I'm the vine. You need to abide in me and I in you. And the life of the vine can flow through you and bring forth great fruit. They didn't know him in that capacity. In fact, as we continue studying through Matthew, we're going to find out that they never did get it until after Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen. And some 50 days later at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and finally they got it. <laughs> and Peter became the rock that God had said he would be, but he never figured it out. And if you stick with us as we go through this series, you'll find that they've struggled with who he was and how his presence impacted them all along. They never did really get it. Um, so there is a tentative response. Thank God for those who say, yeah, I'll take Jesus. I'll accept him as my Savior and my Lord, and I'll look forward to going to heaven when I die. But in the meantime, I don't really know who he is. We don't really have that kind of intimate relationship. Uh, I have not come into a realization of the person of Jesus Christ and all of the fullness and everything that entails. That's one response. The second one is the fearful response of the negotiating demons. Because as he gets over to this land, as I said, this was different. The east side of the Sea of Galilee was infested by pagans and Gentiles and backslidden Jews. And so, <clears throat> as we go back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and when he'd come to the other side in the country of the Gergesenes, also it's the Gadarenes, uh, same people, same place, only using different names, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, increasingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus? You are the Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way from them, uh, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran vilely down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. I've been to the Holy Land many times, probably eight or nine, and I've been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's exactly like it describes. On the rest of it, slopes kind of slowly into the, the lake itself. And there aren't any cliffs, there aren't any steep places. But on the eastern side, the hills come down steeply right into the water. Still do. And there was this herd of swine there, and the demons negotiated with Jesus. There's no faith on their part, uh, but they're just trying to survive and not being punished before their time. Let's look at Mark and see what he has to say in chapter 5. <clears throat> 
Down through verse 13, he says, When they came to the other side of the sea, the country of the Gadarenes, and when he come out of the boat, immediately they met him uh, <clears throat> out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Matthew mentions two, doesn't he? Two men. But here it just mentions one, and that's not unusual in the scripture. Uh, in Jericho, Jesus is met by two blind men in one passage. But in another, it says it was one. His name was Bartimaeus, and, and he did for uh, him especially, uh, not negating or eliminating the other one, but one was more powerful, one was more prominent than the other. And so Mark concentrates on the one who is more fierce, more powerful, more ungodly, uh, more dangerous than the other. <clears throat> and it says this one was dwelling among the tombs so that no one could bind him, not even with chains. This is not even with chains, steel chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. You can imagine this man who was possessed by not one, but many demons who ravished his body, who he became superhuman in strength, had been tearing chains apart, and they bound him, and yet he was freed instantly. He abused himself, cut himself, he hurt others. Uh, it was a terror. It was like a monster in their midst, and they could do nothing about him. And in verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. And when he, the man, saw Jesus, it was the demons within him from afar off, ran and worshipped him. doesn't mean out of faith and obedience, but out of awe and of fear, recognizing who he was. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, because we are many. A Roman legion at this time contained 5,000 men. I have no idea how many demons were within him, but we're not talking about two or three. We're talking about hosts of demons. No wonder he was so conflicted, so uncontrollable, so powerful. Multitudes of demons from hell were within him. And he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, if you compare this with what Luke says in chapter 8, he says, don't send me into the abyss. The abyss... If you read in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, uh, it says that God did not spare the angels that sinned, but cast them down into a place called Tartarus, translated hell, where they would be reserved in darkness until the judgment of that great day. Little theology here, folks. When an unbeliever, an unsaved person dies, uh, his body goes to the grave, but he goes to a place called Hades. Uh, it's a temporary place. You read about it in Luke chapter 16. The rich man died and opened his eyes in Hades. He was tormented there. But that's not a final place. It tells us in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment that death and Hades will give up the dead that are in them. And everyone will stand before God and be judged according to his works. 
and those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire, Gehenna, which is the final place of torment. Well, the demons don't go to the same place uh, when they are condemned as unsaved people do. They go to a place called Tartarus. Uh, it's also called the abyss. It's called the bottomless pit. It's the place where the devil himself will be bound for a thousand years during the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. And it's where these demons were fearful that Christ would send them. They knew that was their destiny. They know the Bible very well, far better than you and me. They, they know what God has said. They're hopeful that their champion, the devil, will somehow be able to reverse their destiny and they'll get out of it. But they know where they're headed. They're just saying, don't send us there now. Don't torment us before our time. Because once you get into the abyss, you don't get out. They would be there until the day of judgment when they were condemned and cast into the lake of fire. They don't want to go there. But they couldn't remain in this man because Christ was commanding them to come out. And they had to go into a living being. They couldn't in, uh, indwell trees or rocks. They had to have a vehicle through which they could operate. And they said, what about these pigs over here? Uh, and can we go there? And Christ allows them to do that. But it was a temporary thing, was it not? As soon as they were inside these pigs, the pigs went crazy. And they went in mass down the hill. And I was going to say across the road because there's a road there now. There wasn't then, probably a path. And right into the sea and drowned. And if we read, time's getting away, so I'm not going to read everything that we have in Mark. But if you looked at Mark chapter 5, verses 113, you would find that <clears throat> there were 5,000 demons and there were 2,000 pigs when you read the latter part of it. It wasn't just a little herd of swine over there. And what were these quote, Jewish people doing raising pigs anyway. Read the Old Testament. They were absolutely forbidden. They were the worst of all animals. You couldn't touch uh, anything that came from the swine. You had to avoid it completely. Here they were raising them. And there were 2,000 of them, and they rushed into the sea, and they were drowned. And what do you think happened to the demons after the pigs drowned? They couldn't stay in the pigs. They had to have a living being to operate through. And I don't think Christ was going to let them go back into any human beings. I think they went to Tartarus anyway. <laughs> they didn't want to go. Please don't send us there. But I think that trip down the hill and into the water was a temporary way to get where they were ultimately going, into the abyss. The negotiating demons. Are there any people like that? Absolutely. There are people that want nothing to do with God. They may have heard about Christ. They heard about the gospel. They write it off. No way. There are, like Richard Dawkins, a well-known atheist from England. Basically, he says, there is no God, and I hate him. Uh, does that make any sense? <laughs> I want nothing to do with him. I don't want him in my life, but I don't want to die and go to hell right now. Just leave me alone and let me go on my way. I don't think there's anybody here like that. Because if that were your attitude, you'd be home watching football or NASCAR or out at the lake or hunting in the last day of this season or doing something else. You wouldn't be in a church that preaches the gospel, obviously. 
But my heart aches to know that there are people out there that are as lost as the demons who are headed for hell and they want nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, though it could save their souls. Don't want to be that way. Then we have the negative response of the defrauded citizens. What do the people who were managing the pigs, how did they respond to that? We need to go back to Matthew. And we see in uh, verses 33 and 34, then those who knew them fled and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Does that make any sense? They didn't, they didn't want Jesus around, even though he had done something that they didn't believe was absolutely possible. That this man or these men were beyond hope. They didn't listen to anybody. They couldn't keep them bound. They couldn't keep them chained. They just tearing up everything, causing havoc everywhere they went. And Jesus, with a spoken word, uh, cast out those demons. The man, if we read in Mark, we find that the, the man himself is uh, absolutely changed. Uh, that um, he is uh, such that I'm trying to find my place here. Hang with me. Verse 18, or excuse me, 14, 15, 16, 17. So those who had fed the swine, they fled. And they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see that which had happened. And they came to, when they came to Jesus and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed, and had had the legion of demons in him, sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who saw it told them how it happened and who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. They didn't just suggest that maybe he would go some. They begged him to leave. This doesn't make any sense. This man had the power of life. He had power over darkness. He had power over devils. He could do miracles. He could change their lives. This one whom they thought was absolutely incorrigible is now seated, fully clothed, in his right mind, at peace. And yet they say, Jesus, please go away. I believe that we have a whole section of our culture today that is of that same mindset. Jesus, you and your folks, uh, you can meet in your holy hovels, clinging to your guns and your religion, but you keep your doors closed and you keep your religion to yourselves. We don't want you out here in the public square. You got no business affecting our lives. We, we don't want you in education because we have the way we want to educate the young people in this country. We don't want you in the marketplace, in economics, because we know how things ought to be run. And we don't want you in politics. We don't want you determining policy because 
We have an idea of how things ought to be. And we don't want you in a public square. We don't want to see your manger scenes. We don't want to see your crosses on the hillside. You get in your boat and go away. Because we want to abort babies whenever, however, to whomever, at any time that we want to, and we want, we want it to be paid for. And we want to redefine marriage, and we want to divine, redefine human sexuality, and uh, we want to educate children as we, as we choose, and we want to promote the things that we feel that are right, and promoting pornography, and uh, human trafficking, and all sorts of horrible things that destroy our, our very essence of our, of our culture, of our heritage, and their attitude is, you folks, you're Jesus, and those who follow him, uh, you get in a boat, and you sail away. Please, leave us alone. Let us do what we want to do. Because after all, it affected the whole society. There were those who owned the pigs, and they lost 2,000 of them. There were those who tended the pigs. They lost their jobs. There were those who farmed the land and provided the food. They lost theirs. There were those who butchered uh, the pigs and slaughtered them, and those who tanned the hides, and those who sold the products. And their whole life would have to change if they followed Jesus. They couldn't do that anymore. So please, Jesus, you and your bunch, get in your boats and sail away. And I think we have a whole bunch of folks out there, influential people in economics and politics and everywhere and education that are saying, you folks, us, get in your boat, sail away, close your doors, do whatever you do inside, but don't bring it out here into the marketplace because we got no place for you. But I don't want to do that. But lastly... Uh, the positive response of the transformed demoniac. And Matthew doesn't even include it. We in chapter 8 without, without including this. But we, we have to be understanding toward Matthew because he hadn't yet been saved. He hadn't yet been called. He wasn't there. If you stay tuned and come back next week, we're going to talk about Matthew and his calling into the family of God. So he got what he had from other sources but he didn't include this, but Mark does. So if you're in Mark, stay there, and we want to look at verses 18 through 20. It says, And when they got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. He wanted to be one of Christ's disciples. However, Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, Go home to your friends. And tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis and all that Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Here was a man who had been demon-possessed, filled with dozens, hundreds, thousands of demons perhaps, and God had delivered him. And here he is, cleansed and healed in his right mind and fully clothed. And he says, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to be one of your disciples. And Jesus said, nope, <laughs> I got other plans for you. This is where you were born. This is where you were raised. This is where people know you, where people have seen you in your deranged, demon-possessed state. And now they see you as you are. You're a witness here. Bloom where you're planted. Stay here in the pagan-infested area. And so he did. He stayed over there, and he told his friends, he told his family. And do you know what Decapolis is? 
It means 10 cities. They were 10 big pagan Roman cities. A couple of them were on the west bank of the Jordan, but most of them are over in what is now the, the city of uh, the nation of Jordan. Big Roman cities filled with people, pagans. And he went to those cities and he preached and he taught, gave his testimony and the word got around and everyone marveled. What does God want to do in you? Each one of us have a different story. Each of us have a different background. We were different people when we were lost. God does something special to save you and to equip you. And you've got a story that will impact people better than anyone else. You could reach people I couldn't reach. People who've known you. People who've seen a change. And there should be a change, amen? <laughs> when Christ comes in, the Bible says, you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to follow him? And you'd like to be his close associate, buddies, buddies with Jesus. But he said, no, <laughs> I want you to go back here to that demon-infested, that pagan-influenced culture in, in which you were raised and from which you were saved and impact them for Christ. That's the response that Jesus wants from you and me. Out of all of those, that's the best one. And I would encourage you, if you look over on the, the back of the bulletin, there are some points to ponder. First of all, Jesus Christ is still confronting people today. He does it through his word. He does it through the Holy Spirit. He does it through other people he brings into your life. And he does it through life circumstances. He certainly confronted me this past month. I used to think that I'd been so healthy and I would just live in that same state until one day the rapture came or God called me home, bitten by a rattlesnake or whatever. <clears throat> Didn't anticipate that I would be brought close to death through a ruptured appendix for crying out loud. But he sure got my attention. God is in the process of impacting people. Um, does it all the time. He doesn't make a personal appearance. I, I really question if someone said, I saw Jesus last night. He came to me and talked to me. I said, what have you been drinking? <laughs> what kind of mushrooms have you been eating? I, I don't believe he makes house calls that way. But he does impact us constantly through these different means. And the second one is, your eternal destiny is impacted by the way you respond when he confronts you. People that don't respond to him at all are going to hell. It's a, it's a fact. It's a reality. Huge numbers, great masses will end this life and wind up in darkness forever and ever. But even those who are saved, our life and our standing before him and our rewards and the things that God does for us and in us and through us beyond this life, they're impacted by how we respond to how he contacts us and impacts us today. Today would be an excellent time for you to reevaluate your responses. Think about it. God want to do something a little different in your life? Have you been kind of like those disciples saying, who is this guy? <laughs> I've, been, I've been one of his disciples, but I really don't know who he is. You want to get to know him better? You want to be used of him in special ways that you might not really enjoy, but God wants to use you like he did that man?